Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode. Me and my friend Jerry, he's been a mentor to mine. He's been a friend of mine for the last four years. And if I ever have questions, especially about business perspective, he's the man that I go to. He's actually the ultimate, in my opinion, the ultimate success story going from steal, stealing food to generating hundreds of millions of dollars, but not only that, but being a great father and a great husband. So guys, if you're struggling with anything today, if you think that you're not where you're supposed to be or you can't get where you're supposed to be, this is your episode. So make sure you subscribe and hit that notification bell. Jerry, welcome to the show, brother. Richard, that, that, uh, Boy, you got that uh, thing at the beginning there. Scared the hell out of me there in my headphones. That thing's impressive. Well done. Yeah, thank that you. Impressive. And it's all it's all because of my friends that, that that help out with the show. I'm just I'm just here. Yes, I know that well. <laughs> so let I'm me ask you a I question. Sit, by the I'm way, lucky I can sit in front of the mic. And by the way, I want to give a big shout out to Billy for for helping us take it, helping us get on screen. So big shout out. Yes, uh, sir. You know, I have a, I do have a brain injury, so if I don't write something down or if I don't um, say it now, I'm going to forget it. But what is your definition of resiliency? So my definition of resiliency, when I was uh, when I was 28 years old, I went out and I started my first company. Um, when I was 17 years old, I lived on the street with in a $25 a week flop house with hookers and heroin addicts. So I went, you know, dropped out of high school at 16 years old and was heading towards a life that would go along with what I just described. And, but I always knew how to work. And so when I was 28 years old, I was approached about starting my first company. I didn't know anything about starting a company. And so I went down that path and in my third year, we had a major competitor went out of business and I worked eight days with a 45 minute nap on the third day straight. My management group was working 20 hour shifts and then going home for four hours and coming back. And we did that, like I said, for a week and a half, two weeks, hired 55 people in the course of that time. At the time, the company was maybe be, maybe a hundred people. And so we had this tremendous growth. And I use that one specific example because when you ask me about resiliency and my definition of it, because it's not physical. Resiliency for me is a mental game. Like so many things in life, the body will go, and as you know this from your military experience, Richard, the body will go way further than the mind ever will. And so for me, and being resilient, it's being, it's being able to, to handle the things that life throws at you, and I use the eight straight days to, uh, and really that set the course for the rest of my life, my ability to go those eight straight days and ignore the the, the pain and ignore being tired, uh, really just get through those first three days or the toughest ones, and after that it got easier. But being able to ignore those things, being able to ignore the stress that comes with with life, that comes with certainly with building businesses and buying and selling them, but just comes with life generally going to school, getting your kids up in the morning, uh, getting a new job, finding a promotion, getting to the gym, working out, uh, working relationships with your wife, your family, your children. And it takes a level of work 
on the on the mental side, which for me is how I would define that resiliency, is my ability to weather all of the storms that life throws at us uh, in a myriad of ways. And again, as an entrepreneur and someone who has done this multiple, multiple, multiple times, I can tell you the stress because because I've made money and I've lost money. Uh, I've made fortunes and I've lost fortunes multiple times. And so you have to be able to weather that and it becomes a mental game. And the mental game the re- where, where that resiliency kicks in is where you don't overreact. You don't become over emotional. Uh, you don't make mistakes because you weren't thinking about it and you were uh, you were reacting to how you feel or you were re- reacting to something before you had all of the information that you need to make that decision. And again, this applies, I think, to life and the same as it does to business. So that would be that would be how I would define resiliency and where I got mine in a way. Now, and I love that. Now, since the last time we've talked, um, you've, got, you've done even greater things. You've decided to get healthy and, you, and we'll be talking about that. But, you know, if somebody's seen you right now just on camera, you know, they would have never known the stuff you went through as a child, seeing murders, suicide, you know, not just being hungry, but actually starving to actually stealing food to actually living the life that you lived as a child. So if you don't mind, you know, let's hop back real quick, because sometimes I think, you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs, we only want to hear the good shit, but I'm, I know that for me, the backstory is always more important to me than the, than the front story. It's so just know, to just hop back to when you were four or five and six years old. Yeah. And just to dovetail off of what you said here really quick, and then I'll do that. It, it, when you, when we're talking about uh, the good versus the bad, as you said, uh, so many entrepreneurs, people come on, they want to talk about the good. The one of the things that I tell prospective entrepreneurs or people that I might be consulting with is that I and this goes against the grain. Uh, and then I'll get to your question though specifically. I only focus on the bad. I don't focus on the good. Now I'll take a little bit of credit, right? I'll give myself a little pat on the back for just a second if I think I've done something well. But what I do well takes care of itself. Right. So whatever it is that I'm going to what I'm good at is going to take care of itself. The thing that that sidetracks so many businesses, I think this thing that sidetracks so many people generally in life is that we tend to focus only on the good and we don't give any attention the way that we should to the bad. The bad might be what you're not good at. The bad might be skills you need to pick up because we're all in order to to get that promotion or, you know, to go do something new because it's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. And so I've always been somebody that naturally went to, I don't need that pat on the back. So I'm able to concentrate on the things that I'm not good at, that I need to get better at. That doesn't mean that I necessarily learn to do them. It means that I need to bring somebody into my life possibly that knows how to do them. But I really concentrate on the, on the things that I'm not good at. That's the things that might catch me. Uh, that I won't see coming because I'm not good at fighting them off. So just as an aside, you brought that up, and that happens to be a key tenant of my one of, of my steps to success, if you will, or the skills that you need. And one of them is uh, embrace the bad, if you will, uh, because that's where all of the mistakes get made. Now, something that you said because um, I tried every when I lost my my heat my vision, my hearing got a little bit better. Not according to my wife, but yeah. Um, 
but you know, you, you talk about perspective, you know, like Michael Jordan, a lot of people, when he gets interviewed, they'll ask him about this, the six championships that he won, but he'll tell you about the 900 shots that he missed or the one big shot that he passed it to Steve Kerr to win the title. He always remembers, you know, the, the losses more than the wins. So is that something, and that's what fuels him even to this day. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that is what I'm talking about in a way. The, the perspective, uh, if you were to ask me, what is the, one of the key, uh, what are the key parts that I use, the key tools that I have that have gotten me where I am? Perspective is, is, has been critical to that because of my background. And so when you start to think about, I'll tell you a story, uh, Richard, of where perspective really came from. Uh, and this is a story I've told many times when I was 14 years old, let's just uh, actually, let me go back to four years old. When I was, I'm the, I'm the, uh, seventh of nine children. My mother had six kids when she was 22 years old. So my older six brothers and sisters, my mother brought home my next oldest sister as an infant. And she had a five-year-old at home, six kids, six kids under six years old, if you can imagine that. So my mother was a busy person, obviously. And so that's what, and then I was born seven years later. My parents didn't want me to be an only child. So I have a little brother and I have a little sister. Uh, as I said, abject poverty, uh, great, great experiences, great, great, uh, memories, I did, you know, for everything bad, which tends to dominate your memories, I don't know for you, but particularly as I've gotten older, I have to really concentrate on the good ones and the good ones have manifested themselves with me throughout my life with my own family, you know, Christmas things and things of that nature, uh, that you think about that take you back to your childhood, maybe music that might take you back to your childhood. So there's a, there, inside of this kind of dystopian Lord of the Flies uh, upbringing that I had, there's also a lot of good. And I want to make sure I make that point, but there was also a lot of harrowing, terrible things that happened. And one of them happened in my 13th and 14th year when I was 13 years old, my older sister, the next one up, the one who, who raised me essentially, uh, she died on her 21st birth on her 21st birthday. If you can believe that she had a heart condition and her heart exploded in her chest. And six months later, I went blind in my right eye. So I'm off to a, I got a virus. It ate my left retina down to uh, 20, 225 vision, and it took, completely took out my right eye. And so now I'm, uh, you know, blind and working my way through the world and wearing glasses. This is before any kind of reasonable contacts and just trying to figure my program out. But what I always did well is I knew how to work when I was 11 years old. Believe it or not, I've been paying taxes. I was born in 1969. I've been paying taxes since 1981. I got my first paying job as an 11 year old and have never not had a job since. And so with that comes money. And I always equated because that first day they gave me at the end of the day, a club sandwich. And I remember very clearly, I, I can see it as easily as I'm telling you this now, and I'm 54 years old. This is when I'm 11. They give me a club sandwich at the end of the day. And the guy knew I was a poor kid. And so, you know how they put the club sandwich out in four pieces and they poured all the French fries into it and gave me all the extra French fries. And I carried that up to the break room. And I remember eating it just like a wolf guarding its food because my whole life I have uh, I have two older brothers and sisters and four older brother, older, excuse me, I have two older brothers and four older sisters. 
And so you guard your food because it ain't coming around. And I'm seven years younger than all of these guys. So when they're teenagers, you know, I'm seven years old. So getting food and having enough was always a fight. And so I would guard that. And I remember sitting there eating that in the corner, like, uh, again, like a wolf guarding its kill. And that imprinted on me the importance of work and food. And that kind of was my guiding uh, was my guiding light, if you will, really for the rest of my life. And so in that context, I'm a street kid at 11, taking the bus downtown to go to work, uh, 12, 13 years old. My sister dies. I'm 13 to 14 years old. I go blind in one eye, uh, almost lose the vision in my other eye. And I'm walking, I, I'm walking from the bank. I got a bank card. Anybody who grew up poor, and is of my age, knows what a bank card means. People today probably don't understand it. But when you got something, particularly when you're a poor kid who came from nothing, and they give you something with your name on it, it's important. It's yeah. real, right? Now, it wasn't a credit, it wasn't a credit card. It had a little visa sign in it, but it wasn't a credit card. It was a debit card. But that was okay because it had my name on it. I'm 14 years old. And I go to the bank and I take out 80 bucks. I had 85 in there, but I took out 80. I don't know if it's still this way today, but they wouldn't let you take that. You always had to leave $5 in the account. So yeah. I took out 80 bucks. I turn around. I get jumped by four guys. I should have seen it coming. It's, it's where I, I, I should know better. To this day, I lament not being more careful, which I am very much so just today because of these sorts of uh, these sorts of offense. But they put it to me pretty good. I, they put it to me really good. And they roll me underneath of a bus state, under a bus stop, a bus bench, and essentially leave me for dead, and off they go. I wake up an hour later. I roll out from underneath the bench. I'm bleeding down my front. Both eyes are black. They had broken my nose. Uh, they had broken a couple of ribs. I mean, they, they put it to me. I get on the bus. I take it to another stop. I pass out in, under a tree in a, in, a, uh, in a park. I sleep for another hour. I wake up. Now it's starting to get dark. I take another bus. Again, I'm making my way home. Another bus. And I get off that bus. This is in northeast Portland. And I have a mile and a half walk. I'm 14 years old. I've just been through going blind. I've just been through losing my sister. And I've just been through this whole other life leading up to that point. I'm walking home. I could take you there right now. 60th and northeast Gleason Street in Northeast Portland, Oregon, right before you go over the I-84 freeway, I could take you to the square. It's an oversized square in the sidewalk because Richard, as I was walking, I've told this story many times, people are going to find this to be fantastical, but it's not. This is absolutely hundred percent real. As I stepped on the square, on this oversized square in the sidewalk, I heard a voice. It wasn't a voice in my head. It was a voice to my right-hand side and behind me. And it was a female voice. And that female voice said to me, as I'm bleeding and both eyes are black, uh, I, my ribs are broken, right? I couldn't be more uncomfortable if I tried. And the voice said to me, there's no one at home. No one is going to help you. And I, and I turned around and looked. I can't believe what I just heard. I looked for someone talking to me and there were, I'm in the middle of the inner city. There's no one talking to me, but I looked at none the same. I remember this as clear as I'm talking to you. And then the voice said, you're by yourself. No one's, or the voice said, you're by yourself. No one's going to help you. And I knew that because there wasn't anybody helping. There's nobody waiting for me at home as a 14 year old uh, with a broken nose and who had just been beaten this way. And I didn't disagree with the voice. And then the voice said something that changed my life. It said, you're responsible for everything that happens to you. It's not your fault, but you're responsible for it. 
And I didn't know exactly what that meant as a 14-year-old, but it told me I'm responsible for it. I stepped off of that square, and little did I know as I took that next step off of that square that it would start a trajectory for me in my life that ultimately would lead me to sitting here talking to you, having had the success, having had the failures, having survived all of those things. Um, that, 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 I don't know if that was, I don't, I, I won't, I don't know if it was God. I don't know if it was Jiminy Cricket. I don't know if it was my conscience. I don't know what it was. It was an out of body experience relative to the voice being behind me that said that to me. And the trajectory it put me on was not a hockey stick, but it did start to level me a little bit more than where I might have otherwise been going, which is jail and drugs and alcohol and that lifestyle, probably dead given, uh, given my aggression. And it took probably a decade for it to take. But what I learned from that in, in, in take every, take responsibility for everything. Everything is your fault. That means that no one else is going to be able to affect my life emotionally, uh, physically, mentally, because I'm in charge. I'm in control. So when something happens at my business and something fails, something goes wrong, that I have nothing to do with. Somebody pushed the wrong button. Uh, somebody said the wrong thing. Somebody did something that ultimately would have cost me money or time or effort or success, any of those things. It never affected me like it does so many people because it's my fault. It's always been my responsibility. And that way I, I take away the power from other people that they might have over me. I take away the ability for outside things to affect me mentally, physically, emotionally, and I control them. And so I attribute that story I just told you to the arc of my life. Once I got out of my teenage years, life didn't get easier right? just because I had this epiphany and this strange voice that said something to me from behind. But what it did is... It just started to lift me above the waters, and ultimately, I started to separate as the decade went, as a decade passed and 15 years passed, I started to separate, and I started to slowly raise myself, and that ascent began uh, all because of this epiphany that I had, we'll call it, when I was 14 years old and probably at one of the lower points in my life. All right, now let something. me ask you a question about that um, because yep. I want to go back to it because some of us will get an epiphany. And then we don't act upon it. And I'm trying, I'm putting myself in your position. You're, you're all beat up. You're beat to shit. Your eyes are black. You can, you can barely see when your eyes aren't black. And I'm sure it wasn't easy to see with, with a black eye and with, with also issue in your eyes. But you get home. You're sitting in your kitchen. You walk in the kitchen and you're like, holy shit. They're right. Whoever said that is right. Nobody is coming to save me. So did you, did you have that moment where you're like, wow, this is real? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't tell you that I had a moment right there. So I, I, because I just went home and did what I always did. In this case, I have a little nubbin on the side of my nose here, kind of a, a growth because they had split the top of my nose. And so for the next three days, I sat and held my nose shut. And once it quit splitting back, when I would let go of it, I figured it was healed. So I spent three days like this in my room, contemplating life, holding my nose, you know, holding the top of my nose shut, which was broken so that it would heal together. And ultimately it did. So I just went about life. I, I think to, to be honest, Richard, I don't think there was that, that event 
kind of that epiphany that I was on my own and no one was going to help me. That made sense to me. The take responsibility for life, that took time. I had to mature into that. But it never was too far outside of my, my thinking. It was always there. And so as I experienced life and I became more mature, uh, I got to start to coalesce, if you will, all of the lessons from life and put them together and really see how that fits in. So that when I was 28 years old, starting my first company and I had my son, my first child, it all came together. I'm, I won't call it an aha moment, but it certainly was a moment. All right. So now, uh, as you see, I'm writing things down because what you're saying is very important to me and I don't want to forget anything. Um, I picked up Grant Cardone's book, 10X. I don't care what people think about him, whatever. Uh, but one thing that I got from that whole book, if I didn't get anything, was, you know, from that moment, from reading that page, everything was my responsibility from that point on. You know, I can't say, well, my daddy mistreated me, uh, grew up in whatever. I cannot, I have to take full responsibility from that moment on. And I think, you know, once a person, and I, we can curse on the show, I try not to do too much, but um, self-awareness is a motherfucker. Yep. You know, and sometimes it's sometimes that you have to become self-aware and be like, listen, this is the shit that I caused. Um, sometimes I got to go back because I'm, I'm in recovery 34 years now. I had I had to go back and clear some of the wreckage of my past, but I had to take responsibility. And I think the biggest part, even in today, whether it's business, whether it's politics, whether it's relationships, nobody really wants to take responsibility of their own shit. Right. That's it's getting worse by the day, but it, it becomes worse by the day because life is so easy now. I mean, there's no one starving in the United States today, right? We've 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 eradicated world hunger. I think it was something like 90% when I was a kid in the 70s, uh, and it's down to 10% now. So just on the most basic level, and you're old enough, uh, Richard, to, to have some sense of what I'm talking about. The world in the 1970s and 1980s is 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 significantly different than today. I can't I can't imagine living growing up in Portland, Oregon in the 1970s, the things that even the most the poor among us have today. And so that perspective that I have, just to go back to that word, gives me the upper hand because I know what suffering is at a level that you can't imagine, even though you think you're suffering. And it's really a superpower. So how do we learn that? Hopefully, from my perspective, I try to tell my story so that I can pass the superhero or the superpower on to other people through my experiences and understanding my perspectives. But it's very, very difficult to do. And you got to remember my perspective also, since it's a guiding principle in my life, means that no matter how ugly, I've lost seven-figure fortunes multiple times. So manage that one. You can only imagine what that means. My perspective on that, though, is not only my childhood, but I've been to Africa. I've been to the poorest countries in the world. I've been to China multiple, multiple times. I've seen poverty on a level. I've seen Africans living in 14 by 14 corrugated metal buildings as far as the eye can see. 
114 degrees outside, wouldn't let me come in until they had swept the dirt floor where six of them lay down or remove the five-gallon bucket that they use as their toilet, which they have to march two miles twice a day to empty because the truck comes in to get it all. And again, as far as the eye can see, and she wouldn't let me in to look at it until I had, until she had swept the floor. She had pride. We're talking other level poverty, no social services, uh, in, in Africa, unless you have children in South Africa, no social services at all. You are on your own, unimaginable to the Americans. I look at that and go, how bad is my bankruptcies? How bad bankruptcy, I should say, how bad is my failures? they don't even compare and then layer on top the perspective that I have of where I came from. And all of a sudden you have a built in superpower that allows you to withstand things that might cripple or take down other people. Wow. And, and like I was just talking to a gentleman yesterday, you know, he talked about he had multiple tours of Afghanistan and there's children drinking out of moats. You know, there's yeah. people that are just, you know, they're, it's just what we got here. I mean, even the poorest person in America is right. sometimes even better than the richest person in, in parts of Af Afghanistan. The um, rest of the world, the rest of the world can't imagine how our poor live. Yeah. They can't, they can't to them. That is the, the lottery ticket. And, and, and having that perspective again, allows you to navigate life. I think much more successfully. I love it. Now, you know, we as we talk, because you're on you're on my old podcast, Success Your Why, Powers Your How, about three or four years ago. And, you know, we did talk about, you know, your first break, you know, somebody actually giving you a break. And and we talked about how some people when they, when they're provided with an opportunity, they either get bitter or they get better. And you were provided with an opportunity. I mean it, whatever slight it was, but you hustled your ass when you got that opportunity. You didn't take it for granted, right? So talk right. to us a little bit about the first time you've seen a little glimpse of hope. So I, and I have multiple stories like this one. Uh, so I don't remember the one that I told you specifically, but I think it's this one. Uh, I took a job driving as a messenger when I was in my early 20s. And after about a year of driving, maybe 10 months, I went to the owner of the business and I said, I'm going to, uh, I want to dispatch for you. The dispatcher you have is no good. And I think I can do a better job. And she said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I said, well, listen to me first. Here's what I'm going to do. You pay me $10 an hour to do a job that is, I mean, this was a busy place. This was pre-computers. This is everything on paper, a foot pedal that I would call out orders to drivers, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And I said, I'll do that job for $10 an hour. At the end of six months at $10 an hour, if I do the job that I think I'm going to, you're going to pay me her salary. And at the time, she was making about 40 grand a year. This is, you know, again, I was 22 years old. So this is the late 80s, early 90s, and unimaginable to me, $40,000 a year. I knew I knew from the time I was little how much money I could, if I made $10 an hour, exactly how I would live. I knew it. I, I couldn't imagine the life of making $10 an hour. And so here I was just learning how to make money, and I said, I'm going to invest in myself. You give me this opportunity. You pay me $10 an hour. I'll save you thousands and thousands of dollars, and I'll do the job even better. But at the end of six months, you give me the job. 
I took that company uh, from, we had about 35 employees at the time to 125 employees from doing a million and a half dollars a year to doing $5 million a year. I carried it for the next six months, running all of the operations, doing all of these jobs. At the end of that first six months, though, back into her office, I went and she couldn't pay me. She actually ended up paying me more than what the person before me was making because she couldn't believe the job that I had done, particularly at the $10 an hour. So I had that opportunity. I took it. I invested in myself. I didn't cry and whine and complain about I'm not getting paid enough and I'm doing everybody else's job and nobody appreciates me around here. I don't suffer from any of that. I don't do any of that. There's no value in any of that. I took the opportunity and I made it mine. And if it didn't pay off, if she'd have said, no, this doesn't work, I wouldn't have gone, oh, I worked for you for $10 an hour for the last six months and now you're screwing me over. I would not have done that. I absolutely know I wouldn't have done that. I would have said, thank you. I would have been disappointed. I would have learned a thousand lessons in that six months. And I probably would have started my own business earlier than I did rather than continuing to dispatch and, uh, and run operations for her for the next six years, the way that I did. So once with that opportunity, everything that, 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 that went or that came along after it really can go back to the point where for six months I invested in myself. I learned lessons that just couldn't be learned anywhere else. You couldn't go to school and even begin to take on what I took on in that six months. But that combination of things then set the stage really for the rest of my life. Right. And I, and I want to dig deep into that, but first I want to thank our sponsors. Um, we were talking a little bit about earlier about, you know, security, especially on, on our devices and on, and on our laptops. I want to thank Daniel from Indy's IT department. Um, and he actually keeps all of our devices and all of our computers safe and bug free. But the best thing about him is when I lost my vision, um, he sent me a brand new computer that was made just for me for visual, for being visually impaired at no cost. And so I just want to throw Daniel out there. Thank you for being a brother and thank you for supporting me because without you, I'm still using the computer for visually impaired. So I just want to say thank you, Daniel. So if you guys need anything IT related, Daniel's the guy. Also, guys, as you know, I'm a, I'm a brother in Christ. I, lo I love my, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I'm also one of my friends is Eric Allen. He has his own show, The Eric Allen Show. He actually taught me how to grow my podcast, how to monetize it, how to get it to be in the top 0.5% of all podcasts in the world. So, guys, if you want to start your own show, check out ericallenmedia.com, and he'll actually teach you how to start, run, and monetize a top-rated podcast, and he will. your life will be so much better if he's in it. Love you, Eric. So I just wanted to you know, throw that out there. All right, so now you did your, did your six months. You got more than that. Now you're, getting, you're hitting the six-year mark. What is your thought process at the six year mark? What changed? I had, I had the second epiphany of my life, the second big epiphany. I was sit, and, and I, and I'm thankful, uh, for whatever reason, the way that my brain works, that I was, that, that, that my, my conscience would 
wake up and tell me something I needed to know. I can't explain it, but I've had two significant epiphanies in my life. I explained it earlier with the one earlier. This was the second one. I'm 28 years old. Now I'm on top of the world, Richard. I've done all of these things. I'm managing. I'm 28 years old. I'm making $60,000 a year. I'm managing all of these big uh, or all of these big operations. I have people working for me that are twice my age. I have zero education, none. 16-year-old kid, drop out of high school, living on the streets as I described. And, but now I'm in charge of all of these things and somebody, and I I started to get a a reputation and somebody had come from the outside and said, Hey, Jerry, we want to, we want to start a new company in Portland. We want you to run it. Uh, we'll give you equity. I didn't even know what equity was. We'll give you equity. We'll put you, we'll make you part of the ownership group. We'll finance it. You do the business, you do the work and we'll be off and running. And they sent me a prospectus, a pro forma, kind of a forward looking set of financials. And I opened up this envelope and feeling all important and had to sign a non-disclosure agreement an NDA. I didn't know what that was. Had to figure out what that was. This is all pre-internet days. And I, I, I got that and I got the documentation and I got these financials and I looked at them and I'm sitting in this desk uh, in this office, again, clear as day, these things are, are, are vivid in my memory. I didn't know what I was looking at. I ran all of these operations. I have this great memory for these things, right? I can do three, four, five things at a time. I can withstand stress at a level that would cripple uh, many people. I'm very fortunate to have this particular set of skills that have served me so well. And yet here I was with all of that knowledge and coming, all that ego, And I'm staring at this piece of paper, this set of financials. I didn't know what I was looking at. And right then I had an epiphany. Again, right then a voice says to me, you need to shut up and listen. (laughs) That's what it said. Shut up and listen. If you don't shut up and listen, you're going to be sitting here when you're 50 doing the same job you're doing now. Now I'm used to listening to these. I, I have the story, right? I've been through this before. This one took right away. In the next six months, I got rid of all of the friends that I had grown up with. I got rid of the bad habits that I had. Uh, Up to then, my life away from work was sports, playing sports, watching sports, going to the bar, playing sports and watching sports. It was all arguing about sports, going to sporting events. It was all sports. And I stopped all of that. Not that I'm not a big sports fan, but I stopped all of that. I left behind all of those people and I searched out very uncomfortably uh, accountants and attorneys and scientists and college educated people that were smarter than I was, which is very difficult to do. You always want that's why sports are so attractive because that, you know, everybody has an opinion. It makes you feel powerful when you have an opinion. You can argue back and forth and there's, there's no definitive answer. So I went and I had to become the dumbest person. So I've always said, be the dumbest person in the room, not the smartest. Who's the person I fear the most in a room? The quiet one, not the one making noise, because the quiet one is the one that's sitting back there and calculating and learning. And that became my mantra for the next couple of years. And again, another springboard to my success was that I just shut up and listened and learned because that piece of paper taught me, it showed me that there were so many things out in the world that I didn't understand, so many things to go out and experience. But I was keeping myself in that nice, comfortable little spot that I was good at, not realizing, losing out on what the world had to offer me outside of that. So I, 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 I 
pigeonholed that. And I started to experience all of these things, setting my ego aside and hanging out and being around and learning from people who had experiences that I don't have. So a lot of the people were smarter in specific ways, but I won't say that necessarily, not as an ego trip, just so people understand everybody has things that they're good at. Everything, everybody has things that they're bad at. And the smartest attorneys maybe doesn't have a good street perspective as an example. And street perspective has served me very well. So it's not necessarily about, about smarts. It's about the ability to learn the information from people who are really good at very specific things. As an example, you want to see how somebody, uh, how to, how to run your relationship in, in with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your, your wife or your husband, and you want to have a long lasting relationship, go find somebody who's been married for 25 years and see how they do it and ask them questions. That was essentially what I did. Oh, I still do it to this day, actually, but I really started off on that journey from that second epiphany I had when I was 28 years old, sitting in that, sitting in that office, running that company. And, you know, that me and you, I think we run a lot. We run parallel to each other because, uh, the, the, the morning of nine, 12, 2012, um, 2001 is when I had that epiphany. That that's when I realized, all right, I'm not living my life the right way. And I was again busted again. I was busted six times. So I got busted e back down to E1 again. But when I went to drill that day or that, you know, that next weekend, I got there two hours early. I said, all right, I'm going to, I want to find out what the E7s, E8s, the captains, the colonels, I want to find out what they're doing that I'm not doing. Because, you know, because then I heard success leaves clues. So I figured I'd get there two hours early, stay two hours late, follow them like a little puppy dog, get whatever nuggets of information I can. And after, you know, a period of time, it didn't happen quickly, but, you know, I became a non-commissioned officer, one soldier of the year. And it was just because of I changed my my outer, my perspective, and I changed of started changing who I hung out with. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I wanted to be the, the, not be the smartest guy in the room. Right. And I, I had to learn, like you said, uh, I am listening. You know, I was a big sports guy. I watched every sports game, got aggravated about sports. But then I read an interview when I interviewed Mr. Buffett. And they said, well, how come you don't watch sports? He says, because money's my game. And it yeah. changed my perspective on everything. So I love what you're talking about. And I, and I think, Certain people, a lot of people, we need to have that, you know, that to be humble enough to say, I'm not the smartest. I'm not great at this. I want to hang out with somebody that is great at that. So I, I totally get what you're saying. You have to step out of your comfort zone and, you know, become comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. That That is, I mean, I always say live in the uncomfortable. I don't want a comfortable world. There's nothing to be learned. There's nothing to be gleaned from a comfortable world. That doesn't mean that we're always living in the middle of a war zone. I'm just saying that as you progress forward and you're looking to find success, you are not going to do it 
and success is however you define it. You are not going to do it being comfortable. So you had better learn to live in that uncomfortable world. Again, that's the world that I come from growing up. So I was predisposed to it. You better learn to exist in that uncomfortable world, or you're not going to get the things that you want to get. The world today makes things seem easier than they are. The reality is, is things are much harder than they are. And so that's one of the things that I, about like reality shows or a uh, perfect example is these flipper shows, the house flipping shows. And I've done a, a ton of house flipping in my life and there's nothing more difficult than flipping a house, nothing. But you watch it on television and you see the show and it looks so simple that that to me is doing a disservice to the reality of flipping, which is stressful and it's risky and it's hard to do and you never know what you're going to find and it always takes longer. It's the type of thing that'll cause people to pull the hair out of their heads. And, and I want people to understand that that's normal because people feel alienated. They go in, God, I watched the home flipping show and those guys did it so quick and it was simple. And the contractor just came in and did this. And then you do it yourself. And pretty soon you're in a crawl space for six hours a day, trying to dig a trench out to put in some new plumbing. And you're like, this isn't part of the program. I want everybody to hear to your point, Richard, that is the program struggling and being uncomfortable and putting yourself in those positions, that's the program. That's where success is found. It is not found taking an online course and expecting to come out of it on the other side, feeling better about yourself, feeling like you have skills that you didn't have before. You might know about them, but you got to go earn them. You know, and I love that. And, you know, it's, take, it's taken us 12 years to be an overnight success. And yeah, right. you know, a lot of people, right. you know, they want to start a podcast, but they don't realize, holy shit, there's a lot of work that goes in, involved in it, including building relationships, graphics and all that stuff. And that's why the average podcast lasts 12 episodes and then it's a wrap. It's over. Right. You know, so now, OK, so now you've got this piece of paper in front of you. You're looking at it. You don't know. You can't make heads or tails of it. Did you take off 28 years old, would get fat, dumb, and happy. They'd get comfortable, and they would, they'd be like, you know, well, this is a new company. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, they're offering, they're offering me ownership, but ownership of, of 0% is still 0%. So did you take the job? So I, I took the job. Um, we, I, I quit the job that I had had. Um, I had just had a brand-new son. So my son was born at the same time that I quit this job, which was the greatest job I had ever had, an, an unimaginable job by any standards. But I had a faith in myself, probably unlike most people. So if I were to brag on myself a little bit, I would say that really I have this ultimate belief in myself that regardless of what's going to happen to me, I'm going to come out on top. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go straight to the top. It means that I believe that I'm going to come out on top and I can withstand whatever the world throws at me. So when I was 28 years old, not only did I believe that, but I had all the hubris and the ego and the testosterone that comes with being a 28, you know, an aggressive, I'm six foot four, 220 pounds, 225 pounds at the time. So I'd been in, you know, a hundred fights and had lived through this life that I had grown up with. So I was, I was pretty sure of myself. Let me put it that way. But I didn't know anything. And I was smart enough also to start to figure that out, as I just described. So I took the job. Uh, I took that company from zero to $3 million in revenue the first year. 
and the uh, the investors didn't have the money that they told me that they had. And when you grow a company like that, that quick, it takes cash. I know that people who aren't in business may not understand that they you look at it and go, wow, you did $3 million in business. It costs a lot of money to bring in $3 million in revenue. The cash flow from something like that, particularly in a low margin business, is fairly significant. So you need money. And they didn't have it. <clears throat> I had to learn all of this. I had no idea what any of this meant. I had no idea how any of these things worked. I'm an idiot kid from the street with zero education, a dropout at 16 years old, and I'm figuring out how these things finance and the way that the world works and cash flow, uh, amortization, financials, forward thinking or forward looking prospectus and performance, all of these things. And so I, after the year, they came in and fired me. They're going to try to take the business that I had grown. And so I went, uh, given the stories that I just told you and the tools that I have, I went and did something that everyone told me was impossible. And this is an important part of this of my life, an important part of this story, Richard. <clears throat> I went and started my own. 17 days later, I started my own. I'd seen it done one time. Other people had done a lot of the work. I had done the, the, the heavy lifting. So I knew how to do it. So my dumb ass goes out because I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that you shouldn't be able to do this. And I went to my five, it's a five or six largest six, excuse me, six largest customers at the time that were with the old company. Now I had just got fired and I had just brought many of these customers on, or I had taken them from my previous employer and brought them with me. Here I am almost a day, exactly a day later, or uh, almost a year later, exactly. And I took them to lunch and I had six lunches in a row. And I sat down and I'm talking big banks. I'm talking uh, these big financial institutions. I'm talking investment companies that moved a ton of stuff all over in, at this point was in Oregon and Washington. And I took him to lunch and I said, you know how I moved you a year ago? I need to do it again. You trusted me before. I need you to trust me again. That was a tough sell, as you can imagine. I wasn't done. I said, also, I need you to prepay me. I, don't, I didn't know how money worked a year ago. Now I do. I can't start the company and take care of business for you guys the way that you know I can unless you prepay me. I got these six big institutions to prepay me. They prepaid me for years and years, well after I needed. I finally stopped it probably in the, I don't know, 2008 or nine. I would guess. I don't remember exactly. But I got them to give me money on a startup for the work I hadn't done for them yet. I didn't know not to ask the question right? Had I known not to ask the question, I would have asked the question anyway. I didn't know. I figured here's an opportunity. I'm going to go until I hear a no. I have it a rep. I had a reputation that I was hard earned. I had put, I had invested an enormous amount of time in my reputation in the job that I did. The people had faith in me. So I was able to use that as currency and ultimately turned it into what that company became, which still operates today. It's been a business now for 20, boy, 25 years. Uh, and it's done hundreds of millions of dollars. And it starts from those lunches, six days, uh, six for six in these lunch meetings, getting these large institutions to prepay me. And so I was off and running. I did $3 million that first year. I got them. I did that in 17 days. I moved the customers over. I hired 101 people before I had started that business. I did $3 million the first year. I did uh, $8 million the second year. I did $12 million the third year. And I did $14 million in revenue uh, 
uh, in the following year. And so that, that kind of set the stage for where I was going. Now there was a ton of hardship. I was doing $14 million a year and I wasn't making any money. So I had to cut it back to $8 million. I had to fire a customer did $2 million a year with me. And it took me about 30 days to come to that decision and give them notice. So it wasn't a, uh, again, it wasn't a hockey stick. It wasn't a straight trajectory. It was lessons learned and then applying old lessons to these new uh, these new impediments that would continue to come up and then try to learn from those and continue to add to the database so that problems might get easier to navigate or I could see them earlier. And I continued to invest in mentorship also so that I could talk to people who had been there before I was. All right. So let's go back to that six lunches, because for me, as you know, we've been friends now for four years. Um, I'm all about building relationships. I'm all about building generational relationships. And I think that's why we're so successful here at VMG is because we build relationships. But if you didn't build those relationships, those six relationships over the years, you wouldn't be able to ask to go for that ask. So talk about the importance of relation, relationship capital in today's world. Yeah, I think that most of what I do today, and I've kind of uh, uh, turned my life upside down in a way as I moved to Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. I lived in Portland, Oregon, where I was born for 51 years. And a couple of years ago, um, uh, uh, the world had turned in such a way and Portland had become what it had become that I picked up and moved. And so I quickly learned moving down here, a place that I had no roots whatsoever, that that ability to make and find and cultivate relationships is important. It's as simple as just talking to people, as you know, and being open to listen. Uh, and I'm about to, in fact, I'm going to be uh, looking at other business interests. And I have a couple of things coming up here this week. Um, that are kind of the culmination of two years of reaching out and having those conversations and meeting with people. I didn't have the, I don't have the benefit of a lifetime of living in the city, knowing it like the back of my hand, understanding its issues, being able to talk about those things because I don't have, I didn't have those down here like I do now, certainly when I moved. Um, but the first thing that I, it's so important to me, the value of relationships are so critical that one of the first things I did was as soon as I moved here was get out into the world, start talking about, start talking, start talking to people, start meeting with people and start to grow those relationships and those connections. And now they're starting to bear some fruit two years later. All right. So now let's talk about, because the show is about resilience in life and business now coming, you know, come up 2008, 2009, the whole world gets shaken with this, this crisis that we came through. Um, and then, of course, with COVID, how had you how did you learn to have to become resilient in your business, especially during, you know, 2008, 2009, and then also through COVID? So how did you, you know, be, continue being resilient and what did you have to do to make sure you didn't go out of business? during these tough times? Well, 2008 uh, for me was not that difficult. I, I, um, relative because I had a good cushion. So by then I had the company making money and it had been profitable for a while. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't nearly as difficult as what a lot of other people, uh, what, a, what happened to a lot of other people. So 
I took a bath on real estate. I did not. The thing that I lament most about 2008 and that particular recession is I did not take advantage of opportunities that I didn't see them. I didn't take advantage of them when they were in front of me, uh, particularly on the real estate front, i.e. buying property on the cheap that quickly appreciated once we got on the other side of it. So uh, I did not handle that the way that I should. Uh, but again, it, it, I, I can't, I owned car washes and gas stations and convenience stores, investment companies, woodworking companies, transportation. Uh, at the time I had my hands in a lot, I was doing development, which I took a bath on, as we talked about, uh, doing development, home building, all of those things. So some places suffered and other places didn't. Um, so I have to honestly say for me, it was more losing out on those opportunities, but also then helping my friends and the companies that I worked with navigate, um, through it, the ones that were having a much more difficult time. And I'm happy to say I was able to help a lot of people through that based on the experiences I had had uh, over the last 10 and 12 years running businesses. So really, that was mine for 2008. Now, now COVID was a completely different uh, animal. Uh, and COVID continues to be the government overreach, stealing people's businesses and shutting them down. Um, my company, the company I've had for 25 years, that's done hundreds of millions of dollars, was was essentially stripped of everything it had down to its shell. It continues to operate today. I continue to work on it every day, but it is, uh, again, a shell of its former self. Uh, and for me, I attribute all of that to the the historical government overreach. And it's not just me. There's a lot of people. I have two suicides, two friends. Uh, I'm not going to say friends, two acquaintances, people that I know whose businesses are no longer here, who in the first eight months after the government stole their businesses, the, the business that they had worked their entire lives on, that they had put the sweat and blood and tears into and risked everything and missed vents with their children and all of the things that us entre entrepreneurs do only to have the government steal it from them ended up killing themselves. Two and two weeks, as a matter of fact. They both lasted about six to eight months, uh, and they just could not live with everything being stolen from them the way that, they, that it was. And so for me, I can't complain, back to kind of the whole point of the podcast today and the whole point kind of my life is, I can't complain because I have perspective that shows me that regardless of how hard I've had it uh, through COVID, there are people who gave everything through COVID and who lost everything. And I'm still here talking to you on your podcast and I've still got opportunities and I'm still out here working. And again, that particular company that was so hit hard by COVID and the government overreach, while it suffered, um, I went to the movies last weekend with my, tw went, I have three kids in their early twenties and my wife, and we were off at the movies. And a couple of weeks before that, I was at the beach with, uh, with my daughter and my wife. So there is no room in the world, regardless of how ugly things have gotten. And regardless of whether or not it was my fault, which it wasn't, uh, I can't complain. All right. So the last thing about business I'm going to ask you is, um, cause this is a teaching podcast also. You know, if you were going to start a business, you know, March 15, 2023, what would be your top three piece of advice for a veteran that's getting out of the military, retiring at age 45, starting out into the entrepreneurial space? What top three pieces of advice would you give them? So the first one would be nobody cares about your problems. <laughs> doesn't seem like it doesn't doesn't seem like business advice, I know. But this, these are conversations I have had, 
I, I cannot tell you how many times. No one cares about your problems. That's number one. So if you are looking to become an entrepreneur, you want to start your own business, you have to immediately separate the experiences that you've been through, the things that you're suffering from, the world that you live in, whatever problems you have on the home front, mentally, physically, you have to set those aside in order to give yourself the best chance for success. I, I tell this story. We all, just in general society today, when I meet you, Richard, and I put my hand in your hand and we shake hands and I say, good morning, how are you? Your expected return is to say, I'm great, how are you? I don't want to hear about how you fought with your wife last night, right? I don't want to hear the stories that that what your day's been like or your morning was like. That's not what I'm asking. I'm at just asking a simple, I'm being polite. Too often, people want to give you your life story without having earned the relationship to give you that story. So I have, you're sitting down to a customer and imagine the customer says, how was your day? And you go into these diatribes about what your day was like yesterday and you immediately turn them off because you're giving them your story and they want to give you their story. And that's the story that you want to get. You don't care about you. You care about taking care of them. You haven't formed that relationship yet. So, so many people are constantly sharing too much. Nobody cares about your problems. They want to know how you're going to fix their problems. That's business. So I would do that, number one. Number two, I would say you can't read enough books to explain to you how the world works. But even more specifically, before anybody sets out on, on, on starting their own business, find a mentor. I was lucky enough at 29 years old, uh, having started that first business and doing $3 million that first year, uh, that I got in, in, invited to start in a or to uh, join a what, what's called a mastermind group, if you will, or, or a CEO group is what it was called. And this is a group of business owners that would get together once a month, half a day. You get to spend half an hour talking about, you know, the questions that you might have or listening. And it goes on kind of on, on a roundtable. And you just get to commiserate and talk about and learn from other business owners, nine men. At the time, they were all my age now at 54. It's kind of funny. And I'm the snot nosed 30 years old. But I went into it with the shut up and listen epiphany that I had. And I didn't say a word for two years, generally speaking. I just shut up and listened. And I learned a ton. And so over the intervening 20 years, that group has been together. In fact, we get together here uh, at the end of March, I'm happy to say. And over the intervening years, I've kind of flipped a script a little bit. Some younger guys have come in. The older guys now are in their 70s and starting to think about uh, retiring. But that group was critical to my success, that out outsized, oversized success that I had, I don't know that I would have been able to do it. I don't know this. Perhaps I would have found other resources, but that group was critical. So finding that, that, that mentor, somebody that can help you, that's been there before you have and shutting up and listening and taking their advice, no matter how difficult it is, is critical. And the third thing would be understand what you're getting yourself into. It is a sacrifice. It is a risk. It is stressful. It is all consuming. You have to pay attention to it. So if you want to dive in, you have to understand what you're asking of yourself because business is consuming and doesn't mean that you're going to be spending 20 hours a day doing this job like I did when I was younger. That the, That's those stories and that kind of growth is rare, but it does mean that 
you might be at a dinner and you got to walk away from it and you got to take opportunities when they present themselves. I say at the end of every one of my podcasts and my little things that I do, opportunities are everywhere. You got to go get them. You got to be willing to go get them. If they're in front of you, you got to be able to go grab them. That means you might have to leave that lunch. You might have to leave that dinner. You might have to leave that beach weekend. You might have to set those things aside in order to go take advantage of those opportunities. Um, so that would be the three pieces of advice. And certainly there's a whole lot more and a whole lot more nuance to all of that. But that would be the three things that I would tell people to consider and to think about and to plan for before they go out. I love that. And as I'm says, you're talking, I'm sitting there thinking, <clears throat> I listened to a pod, um, I listened to a speech last night by my friend and, and mentor, Gary Vaynerchuk. And then I also, also reading a book, but this, I went way back. I'm reading a book by a gentleman called A.L. Williams. He actually started Primerica back when it was Travelers. And he had a book. It was called All You Can Do Is All You Can Do Is and All You Can Do Is Enough. And he talks about, and I think it's even more true today, as long as you work hard and are ethical, you're going to beat 90% of the people. The 10% is the rest of the rest of the 10% is a dogfight. But even like Gary said last night that, it's so much easier to get ahead today because people don't want to work as hard as they used to. Everybody wants the quality of life, but they don't want to earn it to get the quality of life. Right? Am I right or wrong? Yeah, it's 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 absolutely true. It's it's I say all of the time that in order to be extraordinary today, you just have to be ordinary. To in order to be above average today, you only have to be average. Uh, and, and as someone who's had 10,000 employees over the last 25 years, I can tell you that I have a pretty good uh, data set on which I make that proclamation because uh, 15, 20 years ago, the quality of employee that would come through the door was significantly higher than it is today. The expectation of an employee 15 years ago is far beyond what it is today. And that's why I say what I talk about and the things that I teach I think are the road to a much faster success to finding a much faster or finding success faster. I think that uh, getting that promotion is easier if you can follow the things that I teach. And uh, again, we alluded to some of them earlier and I told stories about, I don't care what other people think. I don't care what you're doing. There's no standing around the water cooler as an example. I'll do your job, Richard, my job, the job of the guy next to me. I'll come in late. I'll come in on the weekends and I'll never complain about doing it. I don't care if you never show up. Because in the short term, you might benefit from it. In the long term, I'm going to benefit from it. I'm going to benefit benefit from it from a promotional perspective, from an income perspective, from, a, from an experiences perspective. You're going to be hurt by your behavior. I'm going to enrich myself by mine. The problem is it doesn't happen right away. The problem is too often we see ourselves doing all the work and the guy next to us not doing the work. So what do we do? What do people typically do in those when that when that happens, they slow down. I'm not going to do it if he's not going to do it. And I've always said to myself, I'll do their work and my work and I'll stay late and I'll come in early and I'll do it for less pay. I don't care. I told the story about $10 an hour because ultimately I know beyond the shadow of a doubt from all of my years of experience that that person working that way is going to find the things they want and give themselves the best chance fastest. Okay, so let's for the last couple of minutes. You know, they say that during COVID, uh, most people that worked from home gained fifty to twenty pounds. 
you're down 92 pounds. So how did that come about? And what was the thought process in reimagining and in reinventing your health? So I have been relatively healthy my whole life. I've gone to the gym uh, since I was in my 20s. I played basketball until I was 38. Um, so I was active and in pretty good shape. When I was 38 years old, I had a dormant. Uh, it's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a 40% growth sitting in my left ventricle. It had sat quietly. I was born with it. And then when I was 38 out of nowhere, boom, up this 40% growth comes in. And so that slowed me down. Uh, I had to take meds to slow my heart down. They want to beat your, your heart wants to beat less, those sorts of things. Uh, and I kind of had to deal with that. I had developed AFib and a flutter. That is my heart would raise for 200 beats a minute. I was cardioverted, you know, the clear, that was me. Uh, I was in the hospital 17 times in 2017, admitted to the hospital 17 times. Uh, and so I had these significant health issues, but had always been relatively healthy. And then starting about 2017, when it all really started to kick in for me health-wise, and I started to see a lot of negative things. I had heart surgery. I had back surgery. I broke my back. That's a whole nother story when I was 19 years old. Um, and so I've dealt with that my whole life and I've been addicted to opioids three different times during the, over the intervening 20 plus years. And so I, uh, came into COVID and COVID destroyed, uh, the transportation company that I talked about. Uh, and I, I, and, and I struggled with that. And the way that I dealt with that is I ate and I didn't have time to go to the gym. I was working so much to try to keep the company open. It was moving and changing so quickly. And so the weight started to come on. And then I started feeling depressed. I started feeling unlike myself. I turned 50. Um, and I was, I had lost a bunch of things that I had worked so hard for, and it was getting to be a little bit of woe is me, but not a little bit. It was getting to be a lot of woe is me. I was aware of what I was doing. I want to point that out. I knew I was feeding this, this, this depression, this pain, this anger that I had, I knew I was feeding it. That was the best way. I knew I was abusing myself by not going to the gym and doing the things that I was, that I, that I knew I needed to. So I, I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't my fault because it was 100% my fault. And I was a hundred percent cognizant of what I was doing. I was honest with myself. I was introspective, which is an absolute super superpower being introspective, but lo and behold, in 2000, I decided to move from Portland, Oregon, where I'd lived my whole life, as I said, down here to Tennessee. And it took me about a year here in Tennessee. Uh, I almost died in November of 2020. I had ran out somehow of four pints of my 10 pints of blood in my body. I'd done it over a couple of months. And I had never been so slowed down and sick. I thought it was my back. I thought it was my heart. I thought it was these other. I'm traveling back and forth around the country. And I walk into the emergency room in November of 2020 because it's just I couldn't even walk into my kitchen anymore. They admitted me within 20 minutes. And they're like, you're down four pints of blood. I, I, I don't even know how you walked in the room, how you walked in the building. Forget about you've been operating. I've not seen that before, short of somebody has been shot or stabbed or in a car accident. I said, you know, I just didn't feel good. And so they said, yeah, you're this close. I was in the hospital for three days as they filled me up with new blood. And it was really that moment after 
two years of all the COVID nightmare, getting up and moving and feeling like I needed to make those changes, starting to really uh, stress my life in a way that that worked for me, that kind of live in the uncomfortable. That's part of this move here. I needed that challenge. And so I was starting to rise to that challenge. And then the blood hit and I almost died. And I was like, okay, that's it. So that was November of 2020, January 1, 2021. Uh, I began by, I, I only eat carnivore. So I only eat meat, fat, and protein. That's all I eat, uh, dairy and eggs. So if it comes from an animal, I eat it. Uh, and I ate 1,750 calories a day and I went for a walk. So that was no cheating, no meals of any kind, no bites, no sugar, uh, no carbs of, at, of any kind. And I did that for eight months. I lost 80 pounds. I lost 10.2 pounds per month. Uh, for the first eight months, but then I went for, and I went for a walk. My walk the first day took me 24 minutes to go a quarter mile. I had to stop three times to sit because I have this broken back that I've been dealing with, with all of these procedures that I've done, had 19 total procedures over all the years on my back. The pain down my leg was atrocious. It would stop me. I couldn't walk a hundred yards. And so, but I was like, I can't do, I, I have to push. And so a quarter mile. And then pretty soon I was able to stop three times, but walk a mile. And by March, I'm walking two miles, still stopping four or five times. I can tell you where every bench is uh, in this park that I go to uh, here down the street from my house because I had them mapped out. And then pretty soon I can do two miles and I don't have to stop as much. So what do I do? Do I rest on my laurels? No, I go walk four miles. If I can do two, I'm going to walk. For now I'm walking four miles and I have to stop four times, but I'm doing four miles. And pretty soon I don't have to stop at four miles. So then I did four miles in the morning and four miles at night. I worked out every day, but six days in 2022. And I've worked out every day, but two days in 2023. I do not miss time. I go and work out every single day. And so it was really kind of taking all the lessons from life understanding that I had been beaten up and had gone through all of these experiences of which I was completely cognizant and doing that introspection that showed me, okay, I need to get back to who I was. And if I can get back, they wanted to do another heart surgery and I didn't want to do that. They wanted to do another back surgery. I wanted to fuse some, uh, some discs together. And I wanted no part of that. This is in 2021 or 2020. And so in 2021, I said, I'm not going to make the decision for any of those surgeries. I'm not going to do any of that because I'm fat. I'm fat and I'm out of shape and my diet is a nightmare and I can't make a good decision until I know exactly what the cause is. So as I sit here 14 years, 14 months later, I'm down 93 pounds of fat. I've added 14 pounds of muscle. Uh, I have about another 10 pounds of fat to lose yet. I've made it down to 216. I've come back up to about 225, but again, lifting a lot of weight. Uh, I added weights in August. I added a sauna. Um, the study show that 15 minutes or more in 172 degree sauna four times a week lessens your chance of all cause mortality by 51% significantly. And I already have these heart issues, this back issue. So I already have some strikes against me. I want to see my grandkids graduate from high school. They're, they haven't been born yet. So if I want to do that, I need to make sure that I'm setting that framework. I'm putting that, the, doing the groundwork now in order to do that. And so, uh, I've never, I've ran three half marathons over the last three months. I have two more coming up, uh, in the next two months. I hate every second of it. I hate running. I hate being out there. Um, it's not my program, but it's a challenge. It's a hill that has to be climbed because I know that I benefit 
from that challenge and doing something you hate like that. Um, I don't know when you finish and you cross that finish or when you come across that finish line, I think it's all the more sweeter for it. So I'm lifting weights on a daily basis. My diet is tip top. Now I eat 2,550 calories a day of all meat. You can follow me on Jerry Brazy. Go to TikTok, Jerry Brazy 4, and you can see all of my videos. And I do little short things here and there talking about what I'm doing, what I'm eating, what my exercises are, kind of my take on life. I was the guy that ate the 2,500 calorie burrito meal two times a weekend. And that would be just one meal each day. And I weighed 300 pounds. And so as I sit here 14 months later, my whole outlook on life is so different than when I was where I was January 1st of 2022. Uh, I kept a journal for the first six months because I didn't want to forget how crappy I felt. I didn't want to forget how miserable I was because I'm the type of person who, as I as I progress, I forget what's behind me. I really, I'm able to leave that behind me. That's a, that's a, uh, kind of a leftover skill from the childhood that I had and being able to compartmentalize the stuff away and push that back. And so as I moved forward, I didn't want to forget how shitty I felt. I didn't want to forget how bad I felt. My back pain is all but gone. I run these marathons. I never, or these half marathons. I never sit down. I never sit down when exercising anymore. My heart's never been better. In the last 12 months, I've cut my heart medications, of which they were significant. I believe one doctor said to me one time, you take enough to stop a rhinoceros. And I cut them in half in April, and I cut them in half again in August. So my meds are down significant. I take very little now relative to what I, de- what I did before. My, my cholesterol uh, all of my labs could not be better. Um, my testosterone has come up. I mean, the, 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 the payoff from the sacrifice of eating the 1,750 calories a day and of, 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 uh, of doing the exercise is cheap. It seems expensive at the time, but as I sit here at 54, I feel 34. I've never had so much energy in my adult life that I can remember. And with that comes all of the mental uh, acuity. It comes all of the aggressiveness, uh, that energy you're able to funnel into all of my relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, the things that I go out and do, forget about business, uh, in particular, which has been a, it's been just a watershed for me, but really just how I feel about myself and how I can feel every single day, the, the results of all of the work that I did, all the investment I put into it, um, and all the sacrifice. And you also incorporated cold water, right? You also, yep. You, see, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm creeping on you, bro. I'm watching you. Um, but you, a lot of people, when you first probably mentioned, oh, I'm going to go on a carnivore diet, and they knew you had heart issues, I'm sure they were like, but the doctors tell you, don't eat too much meat, it's going to affect your heart. Don't eat eggs because of the cholesterol. So I'm sure you you caught a lot of shit when you first started, right? Yeah, and and here's what I would tell you and your listeners is that I believe I've not done this on a whim, and I believe that everything that we have been told relative to our heart care and what's good for us is a lie, not a mistake, a lie. We have been told lies. They, the, the way that food is served to us and in the way it is advertised to us is to the benefit of the super rich. It's to the benefit of the big companies. 
and it hurts you and I. If meat is so bad for you, consumption of meat's gone from about eight ounces per day per American in the 1960s to two and a half ounces today. At the same time, almost 70% of us are either obese, diabetic, or pre-diabetic. If meat is so bad for you, why do we have an obesity epidemic? Why do we have a diabetes epidemic at the same time, beginning in the early 1970s, that we cut back on the consumption of meat? We eat less meat today by a factor of four than we did 50 years ago, but obesity and diabetes and prediabetes is at levels never seen before in any human civilization. So I simply, to me, I looked at that and said, something's wrong here. Well, it turns out that that cholesterol drugs are the number one prescribed drugs in the country, and it's not even close. They can fix your cholesterol with drugs, but they don't ever tell you how to fix the problem that requires you to have the drug. They don't have a medicine for triglycerides. I cut my triglycerides from 134 to 74. Eating, I, I'll tell you, the first time I got my labs, I do my labs every time. Really, really quick, Richard. I come out of the hospital. I have my lab in my hand my labs in my hand. And anybody's been to the hospital, kind of, you know how this works. It gives you little, at least the hospitals that I go to, gives you a green check, you know, telling you your triglycerides are down. Check. Your, your HDL, high density lipoprotein cholesterol is down. Check. Your low density lipoprotein, LDL is down. Check. Right. And it's a green check. And then right below all the green checks, it says, keep doing what you're doing while eating a sensible diet of lean meats and vegetables. Now I eat the exact inverse of that. I eat the opposite of what it's telling me to eat. And yet it's providing me this document that says how great I'm doing. So I would encourage anybody to go out. To, you can follow my stuff, but there are people way smarter than me. I can just give you the anecdotal evidence from what I experienced, but there are people who can describe it much smarter than I can, or much better than I can, who are much smarter than I am, doctors, and do your own research. But everything we've been told about nutrition has been spoon-fed to us to the benefit of others. And I only ask people to look at the reality of the world today and the situation we find ourselves in from a health perspective as Americans here in the West uh, to understand what I, I, I think the forces that are preying upon you and have put you in that position. Having said that, everybody puts the food in their mouth. It's out there available to me right now, and I don't eat it. So you can choose not to. Uh, and sugar, sugar's the cause of eight out of 10 uh, diseases that kill all people in the West. It's caused by sugar. Inflammation. I have no inflammation in my body. It's why my joints feel so good and I feel so young, because I don't eat anything that causes inflammation, as an example. So I'm pretty... Obviously, I've got a lot of energy towards this. And I, I, you know, again, I don't care if people, well, Jerry, I like vegetables and I want to eat vegetables. That's great. Eat vegetables. I, you know, just cut back on the sugar and the carbs. You know, bread is terrible for you, as an example. And your body doesn't know how to deal with it. So things of that nature, cut your meals in half will help. There's a guy right now online that's eating only at McDonald's and he's lost a, a ton of weight in the first month. And all he's doing is ordering the big meals at McDonald's and then he cuts them in half and all he does is eat half. So, I mean, even that'll work. Now he won't be as healthy as I am. He won't feel as good as I do. He won't have the energy that I do all of those things, right? Although if that's all it took, I'd eat lucky charms every day, 1,750 calories of them. But, uh, I want to really encourage people from that perspective to go out, take a look at it and just understand I eat nothing but ribeyes, sausage, and 10 eggs every single day for 14 months. 
I've never felt better. I've lost 93 pounds. I put on 14 pounds of muscle, uh, and my labs have never felt better. I've cut my meds in half twice and I have a significant heart issue. I don't take any pain meds and my back has quit hurting. My gums no longer bleed. It's just been magic for me. I love it. So now how do we get in touch with you? Now, what was your TikTok handle? So Jerry Brazy four at TikTok, And then just, you can go to Jerry Brazy. Uh, that is my, that is my website. Uh, and you can find me there on Instagram at Jerry Brazy, uh, on Facebook at Jerry Brazy. Um, and I've got some new things coming out. I'm, I have a consulting company that I'm starting. I'm, I'm starting up a mastermind group. Uh, and all of the information will be there. You can find will be there on my website, uh, which again is uh, jerrybrazy.com. And all of my health stuff, we're going to start putting up there also at jerrybrazy.com. There'll be a tab. So if anybody's interested in seeing my journey, you can see all those ubiquitous kind of, here's what I looked like, you know, a year and a half ago. And here's what I look like today type of uh, uh, type of videos. Well, Jerry, I just want to say thank you, brother. It's been too long. And once you get everything else going, I want you to come back on so you can tell us what you got going on. I appreciate it, Richard. I look forward to uh, having you on the podcast and hearing your story again. It's been too long. It is. All right, guys. Thank you so much, guys. Make sure you check out Jerry. Uh, he's he got an amazing Facebook page. He's always dropping knowledge. He's always dropping. He's got an amazing group, too, on Facebook, by the way. Um, so def definitely check him out. He's You'll have a better life if he's in it. So I just want to say thank you, Jerry. Also, guys, um, like my tagline is, you know, uh, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. So I'll catch you guys later and make sure you check out Jerry. Jerry, I love you, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a great week. You too. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.